So we are now in the home stretch of our series on the church. Um, we were been spending eight weeks understanding what is the church, which is really to ask who is the church, because the church is a people. The church is just Christians, not the place that we gather, um, but the people who are gathering together. And we're understanding biblically uh, who it is that the church is called to be, and what is their mission in the world? What matters most to them? How do they talk to and talk about and talk with each other? Um, and what does God have in store for them in this world? That's really everything that we've covered in the past. Um, but last week, we kind of started with these last three sermons, um, last time being the first of the last third, is we started navigating this idea of um, how to spot a healthy church. And what I mean by that is, practically speaking, one day you are going to have to make an independent decision to be in a church, which means you need to be a sort of detective in trying to understand where it is, what kind of community you are going to be in, and to choose that appropriately, not judgmentally, um, not like finding some perfect church out there somewhere, but using enough discernment. Um, to believe these are real Christians who really trust God and they understand what the church is supposed to be about. And so I've just been giving you a couple of these last sermons um, to give you some tips on what you should look for to spot a healthy church. And the first one we did last week was preaching and how preaching isn't about finding a church that has a preacher who preaches according to a preference you have or has a personality that you vibe with. Um, but it's rather that they're faithful to God's word, and it has the kind of effect that we need it to have in our lives. Um, the way I explained it to you last week was it has a kind of balance. So we're dealing with their expositional, um, but they're also simple. They are conscionable. They care about shaping you, the Bible shaping you morally, but also spiritually, that there's a kind of relief that the Holy Spirit is doing that work. And then also this balance between humility which is really bringing, being brought low because of our sin before a holy God, but then also hopeful, which is being brought up um, so you can be excited about what God is doing. So that was preaching last week. And this week, I want to talk to you about service. I want to talk to you about service because service is a huge um, part of the activity of the church. And the reason I was thinking about this is because service in the church involves a lot of doing. It involves doing stuff. And when we're talking about doing stuff, we get into a part of the Christian life that I think can feel very burdensome and very exhausting for a lot of Christians. And actually, even today, as I was thinking of introducing this, I was thinking as I was writing in my journal, this is my makeshift journal. Um, I take this, and every day, as long as I don't forget, I write one page in summary of what I was doing yesterday. And the reason that I started keeping a journal since at least January is because I really wanted to know uh, what I was thinking um, and how I was dissecting or understanding or discerning what God was doing in my life and how I could do it better. But one thing I started realizing even today, and I've been noticing it for a couple of months, is very often I actually don't uh, write down what I've been thinking and learning. I write down what I was doing. And I think the reason for that is because I, and I think a lot of other people, can think a lot about their life in terms of a series of things you've done. Things like accomplishments, things like experiences. And I think those add a lot of value to our life, and they should. And I think that's justifiable. 
But when everything is about doing, and you don't understand why you are doing the things you do, or how the things you do shape how you think and how you behave, you don't really realize that you can do a lot of doing and have no idea why it matters. And that's why I want to talk about service in the church, because a lot of service in the church is not the way we think about it. It is not, I am a faithful Christian when I am involved in X amount of ministries, or I put X amount of time into the church. And a lot of Christians can think that way. Maybe not actively or theologically, if they were explaining it, but in the course of their life, they demonstrate that is actually what they think matters. And that's how a lot of Christians seek value. And I want you to be involved in ministries in the church. I want you to serve in the church. But I want you to understand biblically, not just why it matters, but why that is an incredibly exciting opportunity. And so because of that, I want you to go over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen behind you. I think it's way easier if you see it in your own Bible so that you can pull it out and know exactly where it is that we're talking about. I want to read you three verses and hopefully try and explain um, how the Apostle Paul got to there because we're closer to the end of the letter of Galatians than the beginning. But these three verses have a whole argument in themselves that I think is easy to unpack. Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 13, 14, and 15 is where we'll settle today. But this is Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Paul says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The idea that Paul is trying to get at in these three verses is that serving is all about your attitude before it's about your actions. It's about your attitude before your actions. And the way that Paul will build in one short verse, in verse 13, to explain why serving matters and how you can serve the way God calls you to is because you were called to freedom. Freedom is a good way to describe the entire Christian life. It's also probably the most opposite way that many non-Christians would describe the Christian life. When other people see that your whole life is shaped by a person and certain principles, they will say that is the opposite of freedom. And I think a lot of Christians in the church, when they think about serving, or if they're in a church that promotes service a certain amount, even they can feel like that doesn't feel very freeing. That feels more like slavery. That feels like the opposite of freedom. But nonetheless, Paul is trying to explain that serving is a result of freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers. You'll understand where this comes from if you understand the argument Paul has been making in Galatians. And his argument in general has been that Christ brings a kind of freedom this world doesn't offer. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, because when sin was introduced into the world, it says that we were under a curse. That's the way the New Testament describes what happened when sin came into the world. We were under a curse. And honestly, just the idea of being under a curse um, is a massive, massive topic. 
But just to simplify one big aspect of it, what Paul describes as a curse is this idea that when sin happens, and specifically when we sin, we feel a kind of brokenness, a kind of guilt, and a kind of shame. And even unbelievers feel that guilt and brokenness and shame when people sin against them and when they sin against other people. But when we sin and we feel that, I think most people, even people with quite a dead conscience, feel a kind of moral burden to free themselves from that guilt. And often the way that happens is to try and be a quote-unquote good person. People will try to do good things to feel like they're a good person to free themselves from guilt. And what Paul explains in Galatians is that is actually a curse. You trying to earn the respect of being a good person is a curse. Now, this is especially difficult for religious people. I think non-Christians feel that, but Christians and other religious people totally feel this. And the reason is because we're not just trying to earn the title for ourselves, the identity of a good person. We're trying to be a good person before a holy and righteous God, or for other religions, gods, or whatever divine presence exists. And because we know there should be some kind of moral qualification for being with a god or gods, we try to earn favor with that god. But because sin isn't easily gotten rid of, because we have a conscience that holds the memory of all sorts of sins, and because learning more about God or his divine presence and sinning more builds more and more guilt and shame, especially for religious people, trying to do enough good to feel good is a curse. And the way that Paul kind of describes that whole entire idea is he says that is living by the law. Living by the law is a curse. Trying to do enough good things to be right with God is a curse. He explains it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What he's explaining is that a perfect God demands perfection or else he would allow imperfect people to represent him and to be with him. And that would ruin the perfection of God. That would ruin the qualification that it's okay to sin against this God. And therefore, if you do one wrong thing in the law, it disqualifies you from being with God. But therefore, ignoring that and still trying to do enough to be right with God, that is a curse. Because it is condemning you to a life full of guilt, full of shame, and with no assurance. But the whole reason that Paul is actually writing the book of Galatians is to explain that is not the way, but there is another way. And that's why in Galatians 3.10, as soon as he explained living by the law is a curse, he explains living according to Christ is the opposite. He says this in two words in verse 13, where he says, Christ redeemed us. Redeemed us is this idea of being bought back. There was a cost to being right with God, and it was paid by Christ. And it literally means freedom. Christ freed you. Christ redeemed us from what? From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The perfect life you needed to live 
and all the punishment for your sin that needed to be paid for, you could call all of that the curse. All of that was put on Jesus Christ. Paul sums this up actually in one verse in the book of Galatians, which is Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul says this, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, which means someone isn't right with God because they did all the right things. That's what that means. He says, but through faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe Christ has done everything you needed to do and Christ was punished for all the sins that you committed, then you are right with God permanently. And then he explains the whole idea again. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is trying to shove this idea into your brain deeply. There's not enough you can do for God to be accepting of you. But that's why Christ came, so that you would believe in Christ and therefore you would be acceptable to God. And what Paul wants to explain is that doesn't just affect your hope of where you're going to end up one day. That affects your hope about how you can live right now. Are you following me? This is not just about you making sure I won't be in hell one day, I will be with Christ one day. This is supposed to affect how you live, how you live right now and the joy you have in life right now. But before he goes that, he has to deal with something because there's also a way you're not supposed to live right now. There's a way that freedom is not supposed to look like right now. And so he covers that first by saying this, you were called to freedom, brothers, but only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The religious people that are against the Galatians in this letter, so specifically people called Judaizers, so people who said they were Christians, but they actually valued a lot of the Jewishness that came before. They said, you know what's the problem with the gospel? The problem with this idea that faith is enough is people are just going to take that and they're going to use it as an excuse to sin. They're going to take this grace thing and they're going to hold on to it and then they're going to sin as much as they want. They're going to take it as a license, a free pass to go out and do all of the things that we're not supposed to do. And then when people say, why are you doing that? That's wrong. They're going to say, it's fine. Jesus died for those sins too. And you know what? That's a fair argument. But the solution to that argument is not make sure you do everything perfectly. Make sure you never sin again. There is a way that outside of Christ you can make up for your sins. That is not the solution. And that's what the Judaizers said was the solution. Paul agrees. You're not supposed to live according to the flesh, which is your old sinful nature. But you don't need to for a couple different reasons. The first reason is because you are now motivated to live for Christ. You are motivated to live for Christ. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 6, which is something we covered in our How to Change series when we were talking about our identity in Christ. Back in Romans 6, 1 and 2, Paul said this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So because I'm saved from all my sin, does that mean I can sin as much as I want, is the question. And Paul says, by no means, not at all, absolutely not. Because how can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Paul is saying, why would you want to do the very thing that Christ came to die for? If Christ, God, came down from heaven, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, was rejected by everyone he came to save, even his disciples, and then had to be punished by being separated from God the Father on the cross and suffer that humiliation and torture and die. Why would you want to do all the stuff that made him have to die? That doesn't make any sense. The cross saved us from sin. It also proved how bad sin was. So why would I ever want to sin? So the cross should motivate us not to sin. But Paul explains, actually, it's even better than that. Because even though we still do struggle with sin, we used to be fully motivated to sin. That was our greatest motivation. But Paul also wants to explain, outside of your control, supernaturally, by God's gracious sovereignty, you aren't just motivated to serve him, you're transformed so that you can serve him. And he explains this in the same chapter, in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. And as I read you these verses, listen for the concept of slavery and freedom. Listen for it. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Christ freed you from wanting to sin the same way you used to. Every Christian still struggles with sin, but we do feel a different kind of guilt and shame over it. We do have a motivation that says, my life isn't about this anymore. My life isn't about fulfilling all my pleasures and satisfaction. My life isn't about living my best life, regardless of how anyone else lives there. I have the freedom to say no to sin, and I didn't have it before. But even better than that, I have the freedom to say yes to obedience to Christ. I have the freedom to enjoy obedience to Christ. That doesn't make me terrified every time I sin, but it does make me want to repent when I notice my sin. And it does give me the assurance that Christ is slowly helping me to be more faithful and more godly every day. And as he continues in the book of Galatians, he explains that that's because you have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit changes your desires away from sin and helps grow you to be more and more like Christ. This is what God has promised to you. And therefore, we are left with this question. So freedom is freedom from the burden that living by the law will give me assurance of forgiveness and it will free me from fear that God doesn't like me because all of that is settled in Christ. But freedom also isn't committing all the sin I want to because I don't want to do that anymore, both logically and morally and supernaturally. So the question is, what should my freedom look like? If I have freedom in Christ, what am I spending it on? What am I doing with my life? And Paul explains it in the end of verse 13. He says this, through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Paul doesn't want you to take grace as an opportunity to sin. He wants you to take grace as an opportunity to maximize your life for serving others. I love this quote that's going to be on the PowerPoint behind me um, that another person said that I think sums up this idea very well. And if you're a little confused, I'll re-explain the quote when it's done. He says this, 
through the gospel message, taking root in the heart, we're introduced into the realm of freedom, the sphere of grateful and spontaneous living to the glory of our marvelous benefactor. And we're invited to roam about freely in this new country, delighting in its treasures and making full use of its opportunities. And if that quote is a little confusing for you, let me sum it up simply by saying this. Since God has promised that believing in Christ leads you to heaven, you have the freedom to maximize your life by serving others. You have the freedom to live your life and see every opportunity to love as an opportunity to invite someone else into heaven, to demonstrate to them a taste of heaven. And the reason is because you're not worried that God is ever going to be angry with you. You're motivated to serve him. And you're not trying to make this life heaven because you're going to be in heaven eternally one other day. So you don't need to force your life now to be all about you so you can be happy because you're going to be eternally happy with Christ in heaven. So instead, you think that way now and everything about my life isn't about me looking inward, but me looking outward. And the way I do that ultimately is looking like Christ. It means serving people in love. And love is really the key word. It's not just doing nice things for others. It's doing nice things for others because you want to show the love of Christ to them. That's why another author said it this way. Everyone who belongs to Christ is an outpost of eternity in this world. God calls his people so to live and so to serve that they are themselves the evidence that the age to come is already dawning. Another way to explain that is when we were slaves of sin, we were trapped in a lifestyle of death. Everything was a reminder of our punishment and our consciences told us that when we sinned. But now in Christ, everything in your life is an opportunity to bring a ministry of life and a ministry of light by pointing people to Christ when you love them. And this idea is so jammed packed that Paul ends up taking two more verses to try and explain reasons why this is so important. He gives the first reason in verse 14 and then the second reason in verse 15. The first reason he gives in verse 14 is this. When we live in love, we fulfill the law. Paul wants you to know you should spend your life maximizing opportunities to love other people by serving them, because when you live in this love, you fulfill the law. He says in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So even though the law isn't our standard to get saved, the idea behind the law still matters to us. You could call it the spirit of the law. There was one unifying principle behind the law that made it relevant and made it important. It wasn't about using it to be perfect. One big reason the law exists is to show you God was perfect and had a perfect plan for us. And this is a big concept, so I want to simplify it by just explaining this. I think so many believers, and unbelievers definitely, don't understand the law. I think sometimes our attitude can be looking back in books like Leviticus or Numbers or parts of Second Chronicles, for example, and you see all these things that the Israelites had to do, 
And I think the attitude we walk away with is God is just really picky and he's really particular and I'm so happy I live now and I don't got to do any of this stuff. It would take up my whole day. It'd be exhausting. I don't get this thing. And honestly, that's fair considering we live so many thousands of years later. But as a Christian and as you grow in maturity and as you understand the Bible more, you should understand that it's not an accident that you have the book of Leviticus for you. It wasn't just there as like a reference book for pastors. It was there for every Christian. And one thing that you will understand when you start reading those laws is they're not as weird and picky and particular as you think. And I think Paul gives you a perfect example in this when he says the law is fulfilled in this phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law was all about love, which I don't think a lot of people understand. But you'll understand it, actually, if you realize that verse is from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And if you spend your time tonight going to Leviticus 19 and deciding to read through it, you'll be surprised at how moral and good those laws are. For example, in Leviticus 19 alone, it explains you should protect and you should provide for the poor. You should house people without homes. You shouldn't lie or cheat or steal from others. You should believe everyone is equal. And in your heart, not just in what you do, but how you feel, you shouldn't hate people. Now, I think even if non-believers or atheists read something like that, they would say, I agree with all of those things. But what God is explaining to us is, you would not believe those things or understand those things unless I gave them to you. Because the law, whether it's parts like that that we understand, or other parts of the law that we don't understand, everything was about this. Honor and respect God and live in light of his love. The law was definitely about holiness. I think a lot of Christians understand that. It's about reverencing and respecting and honoring God. But it was also equally about love. As you purify yourself before a holy God and as you become closer to him and start understanding how good it is to be in his presence, it makes you a loving person. Because 1 John 4 God is love. So what Paul is trying to explain in verse 14 is, I'm telling you to serve others in love because even though you being a perfect person doesn't earn your role with heaven, the more you understand being obedient to God that he does still call you to do things, it isn't about you. It's about you doing for others. It's about you demonstrating through your life, through a pattern of experience, that God has the best plan for life and everyone who experiences it experiences love and gets to love differently than the rest of the world. That's why all of the law is summed up in this idea of love. But Paul gives a second reason, which I'll point out more quickly, though I want you to understand the force of it. Paul explains, without living in this love, we will be destroyed. And by we, he means the church. Any church who ignores love as our main goal and purpose will destroy itself. He says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Recently, uh, Ashley's been studying Japanese, as in the language, and I've been super impressed with 
how much she's been learning in such a short period of time. But before she was learning the language, she was learning about the culture. And I'm married to Ashley, so that means I'm learning about the culture because I talk to my wife and she tells me about the culture. And so we have been going through various parts of entertainment and animes and a couple television shows here or there. And one thing that's interesting that you will notice if you look at Japanese culture is there's a different kind of darkness that sometimes is talked about. And the reason is because, and a number of sources have said this, is because back at the end of World War II, which is 1945, officially the war ended because the US dropped two nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hundreds of thousands of people died. And even though it was terrible that hundreds of thousands of people died, the damage didn't stop there. And what I mean is even though that was all physical damage, there's also emotional and cultural damage that still exists today. Even now, a lot of Japanese people, in their collective subconscious, think about death more than we do. Because death isn't just something that happened a long time ago, it's something that happened 60, 70 years ago. People have many family members who would have died in those attacks. And the point of that is saying is that when something really bad happens, we can think sometimes the effects are contained, but really they affect so much more than we think or that we could imagine. And what Paul is trying to explain is that same logic goes when we ignore the imperative to love. We can get into little patterns in the church. We can get into patterns of being impatient with people or holding grudges against people. And that turns into bitterness, which turns into frustration, which turns into anger, which turns into rage, which turns into confrontation, which turns into more people having confrontation. And before you know it, some tiny little issue that maybe wasn't even an issue has turned into the destruction of the entire church. And Paul wants to explain how serious this is by describing this as cannibalism. When you don't forgive each other, you eat each other. That's the picture he's giving. This is one of the biggest warnings, I think, that Paul gives in the entire New Testament. And even though the church has hope that it can live in love, and this does not need to be the future of the church, you should still have it in the back of your minds that the difference between doing loving things and being a loving person, or rather doing loving things because you love people, is the difference between life and death of your church. And I think if you take those reasons together, I think it gives us a couple of applications to think about how these things actually work out in our church. Because it's good to know that stuff, but I think a lot of us know that stuff, and it already makes sense in our brains. And so with the few remaining moments that we have left, I want to give you a couple of applications. Because one day when you serve in a church, you're going to realize, even though it's easy to know I'm supposed to love people, it's also difficult to love people. And therefore, it's difficult to serve people. Sometimes it's really easy to do things or be involved in ministries in the church. But it can be a lot more difficult to love people in the church. And so even though we have these ideas, I want to give you some applications so you can have a healthier view of what service in the church will look like and how you can navigate the complexities of it. And there's only two. 
And the first one is this. Have a natural view of service in the church. Have a natural view of service in the church. Another way to say that is have realistic expectations. Have realistic expectations of what you serving in the church and other people serving you in the church is actually going to look like. So for example, we know love is supposed to be natural, right? It's supposed to happen because we're a family. We spent a whole service on how the church is loving because God is love. We worship that God, transformed by that God, and so we behave like that God. And I hope you also understand that that means unity. We are together. We treat each other as one. One metaphor that we didn't cover when we did this series on the church is that Paul describes the church as one body, which is the idea that we're all very different, we're all very unique in our opinions and our personalities and our giftings, and yet we are all one together. Even though we have diversity, we have unity. Those things are natural, love and unity. However, to use the immortal words of Veninga Montoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. Those of you who laughed, I'm proud of you. It doesn't mean exactly what you think it means because just because we're called to love each other and just because we're called to be unified doesn't mean we do that perfectly. And for those of you who grew up in the church, you probably know this by experience. Let me really quickly give you two unnatural expectations of what service in the church looks like. Unnatural expectation number one, I can love someone without knowing them. Or you could say it this way, I could serve someone well without knowing them well. Being involved in ministries are great. Being on the worship team is great. Holding babies when they cry is great. Bringing snacks is great. But all the best ministry isn't about doing, it's about people. And the way you are faithful and effective in those things are when you love the people in them, and that involves learning to know them. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, we learn by a kind of osmosis how to sense other people's needs and then to find ways of meeting them. And what I mean to say is you need to be with people, observe them, and listen to them in order to love them well. And the reason that matters is because people are different. We are not all generic blobs of a similar kind of Christianity. Christ has changed your effectiveness and your personality and your future as a result of knowing him, and it's different from mine, and it's different from the person to your left and to your right. And God maximizes us and uses us in totally different ways, which means we need to know how to love and serve each other differently. Sometimes people call this love languages, and I think in one way, there's a lot of value in understanding that people love and receive love differently. If you give me a hug, or if I give you a hug, that's more normal in my love vocabulary. I also know a lot of people where you love them, that's like the most unloving thing you could ever do for them. That's like the most uncomfortable thing. Get away from me. If you go like three, maybe 300 paces this way and give me a smile and a wave, that's love. I like that. People are so different. And therefore, we need to spend a lot of time trying to observe whichever person is before you or the next person after that to know, how can I serve this person as a specific image bearer? How can I know to love them the way they can be loved so I can show Christ to them in a clear way that might be different from someone else? 
therefore have a natural expectation that people need to be loved and served differently. Here's the second one, unnatural expectation number two, everyone will love me exactly the way I want it or need it, which is flipping the script. It is really easy to look out there and say, lots of people aren't loving me, lots of people aren't serving me. People aren't observing me or listening to me or seeing what I need. And you know what, that's fair. But you know what's not fair? Is to think that that's unexpected. Because the reality is that in the same way people are different, people go through different periods of suffering, people have different kinds of sins, and people are prioritizing different things. Which means their base tendency isn't to love you with the strength that you love yourself. The imperative to love and serve is always us towards others, rather to, than assuming everyone else needs to love me the way I experience it. The reality is that you are never going to go wrong if you put more of an expectation on yourself to love others than for other people to love you. Because the reality is that a lot of people get frustrated with that because they find all their value in being loved by other people. The Christian life is supposed to be healthier than that. The Christian life is, I'm receiving so much love from my vertical relationship with God that it just naturally pours out in love for other people. As I understand the depth of the Father's love for me, and that Christ came to die for me, and the Holy Spirit is reminding me of that truth every single day, I don't look for other people to love me because I have all the love I need in Christ. Do your best to have a healthy expectation of your ability to love. But to balance that out with a natural expectation, let me still say this. It still matters that people love and have unity in the church. And it is not wrong to have an expectation that other people can grow. But the way I think we can say it with a healthier balance is this. If people work towards unity, it will slowly kill patterns of disunity. If you work towards unity, it will slowly kill patterns of disunity. And what I mean is if you go into a church and you see that certain people need to grow in love, the best solution, the best medicine for that is to love them. Be an example of Christ clearly to them. The promise God has given is that as you commit yourself to that, he will commit himself to his Holy Spirit moving in people's hearts to help them understand that love. Even though there's lots of wisdom in dealing with people who are particularly hardened and particularly stubborn and God has different paths for when those things kind of go really bad, the objective promise God has is that everyone who is saved by him, every Christian who is a part of his church, he will soften people, and he wants to use you to soften them. All of that is just to say, have a healthy expectation of how Christians love and have unity with each other. To give you two promises of, of why you can trust God to do the work, here's one. One guy, Jerry Bridges, said, God's love frees us from condemnation and competition. I love that. God's love frees us from condemnation, from God's wrath, and competition. Me getting angry with other people because they're different than me or because they're better at things than me. God designed his church to have more unity than that. 
The second thing is this. Even though it is unnatural to assume that anybody could forsake selfishness, the reality is God has said, because he's supernaturally blessed us, it is natural for us to be selfless. Because we've been supernaturally blessed by God through the gospel, it becomes natural to love their people, and it becomes natural that other Christians will love us too. That's the promise God has given to his people in his church. Here's the second one, and I'll try to go this quick because we're running out of time here. The second application is this. Be loud about love when you're serving in the church. Be loud about love when serving in the church. And the reason I'm saying that is because people can be loud about serving in the church, but they cannot be loud about the attitude you need when serving in the church. If you're loud about love, people will naturally serve. But if you're loud about service without love, things can still fall apart. Because the attitude at the end of the day is a lot more important than the action. People can get really distracted by doing things. And that's why a lot of times people in the church can be preoccupied with this idea of gifts or asking questions about how has God designed me to function well in this church? What has God gifted me? Some people understand there's a whole category called spiritual gifts. And so people want to know what are mine? How can I help in the church? And just from personal experience, so this is an opinion, I think there's at least two reasons why people get stuck in that question sometimes, even though it's a totally good question. The first reason is because people really want the church to function well. They want the church to be effective. God tells us to preach the gospel to the nations. We want to go to our community and to as many nations as possible. That means we got to get this done. We got to serve well. We got to serve effectively. We got to do a lot of stuff. But then the second reason, too, is because people want to feel valuable in the church. And again, I think that comes from a good thing. So many people can come to the church because outside in the world, they did not feel valuable. And suddenly they heard the gospel, and God gave them value. And then they come to the church, and people made them feel valuable and helped them and served their needs. And they want to say, I want to help those people the way they helped me. I want to serve like those people serve. But sometimes that can accidentally burden you by doing so many things and feeling like you're in debt to people rather than receiving God's love through them and just accepting it. Because people's love is not an IOU to you. And I think the problem with both of those things comes down to the same thing, which is we still, even in our sin, have a tendency to look inside of us rather than look outside of us. We tend to look at, how can I do better? How can I be better? How can I be more faithful? Rather than just looking outside of us and saying, who needs love? Who needs to be served? Who needs to see Christ? I like this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. It's up on the PowerPoint for you as well. He says this, much activity can give our churches a real sense of buzz, which is excitement. That can be confused with, but it's not the same as a real measure of spiritual growth because service has much more to do with caring and loving than it has to do with merely being busy. So subtle are our sinful hearts that they can be constantly busy, but in the process doing little more than serving our own interests. So what's the test? The person who is genuinely busy in the Lord's work cares nothing about whether they are noticed or not, whether they gain position in the church or not. For Christ-like servants are always taken up with the interests of others and not their own. The moral of that story is that it's good to do a lot of things in the church, 
But listen, you guys know you're busy now. You're going to be more busy later, guaranteed. And one thing we don't want you to feel is just another thing to add stuff is just being in a church. I think it can freak people out joining a church because they can have so much work to do in their jobs, in their families, in their lives. And the church is just one more thing that's going to tell me to do a bunch of things. And that is not how Christ wants you to think about serving in the church. He wants it to come from your freedom. And therefore, he wants to free you up from things that service is not about. It is good to care about effectiveness. It's good to care about being an effective person for the gospel. But that's not how you're going to be right with God. If you read your Bible and pray tonight and wake up tomorrow, God is 100% pleased with you. If you don't read your Bible and you don't pray and wake up tomorrow, Christ is 100% pleased with you. Do you see the difference? There is no difference. You've been set free from obligating yourself to gain heaven if you believe in Christ. And therefore, you can care that as long as you are loving people and you are caring about their souls and you are doing your best to grow in that, you are being as effective as God has called you to be. And the same goes for your value. One of my favorite songs is from the Gettys, My Worth is Not in What I Own. And one of the verses ends with, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. And then they explain what that means. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. God calls me valuable despite what I do. And it doesn't change when I sin, and it doesn't change when I'm righteous. Christ fixed, cemented, gave a permanent status to your value when he died for you at the cross. All of this is, again, just to get to this thesis that serving in the church is good, and you should do as much of it as you can. But the moment it feels like a burden might be the same moment you forgot about the gospel. When you know the gospel is supposed to free you up to serve joyfully and excitedly as an opportunity to maximize what God has given you for the benefit of his people is the moment that you will naturally find your place in the church, you will naturally be used well, and you will find the assurance that God will call you a faithful servant one day.